0: Would you stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from the book of Proverbs? (laughs) Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. 1821. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Twenty-one twenty-three. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. 15.4 A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into trouble. 17.20 If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. 18.13 The heart of the righteous meditates on how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out bad things. 15.28 To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, a word in season, how good it is, 1523. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, 2511. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly, 151-2. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. 29.9 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 18.2 The wise of heart is called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. 16.21 Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips he is deemed intelligent. seventeen twenty seven to twenty eight. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. twenty nine twenty. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. ten nineteen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hi, everyone. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Uh, and it's been a while since I've taught anything. It's uh, been two months since I've set foot in a classroom, so I'm, I'm uh, finding my sea legs again. But as you could probably guess from that slew of randomly assorted proverbs, we'll be talking about the importance of speech and how you use your words. Um, the So far in this series we've been taking more of a a bird's eye view. Josh has uh, started off by introducing us to this idea of wisdom as we find it in the scriptures. And there are certain books in your Bible that are dedicated for that. They're called the Wisdom Books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And um, we went from that general introduction to talking about the first book, the book of Proverbs. Um, And uh, Josh did a great job of telling us that all of what we think about with regards to wisdom centers around this idea of the fear of the Lord, that if you don't fear God, not in the sense of necessarily being scared of Him, but you, if you have Him as sort of your guiding center and you, um, you orient your life around Him and what would please and glorify Him, that is the, that's just the beginning of wisdom. You can't have wisdom without that. Uh, So, in this message and uh, the next, we're going to take a little bit more of a uh, a topical turn, and I decided to address the the topic of speech, because uh, when I was asked to speak, I didn't really know what to talk about, so what better way than just to open the book of Proverbs and read it and see what jumps out? Now, if you've read the book of Proverbs before, and you get to about chapter 10, the rest of the book seems very, very scattered and random. And that's kind of the point. Um, It can be sort of overwhelming to read that part of the book of Proverbs. But if you sit down in, in one sitting, if you can, and you really give yourself to it, you'll notice certain things pop out over and over again. And so all of the passages that were just read, that's only about half of all of the passages that talk about this topic in the book of Proverbs, um, there's a number of other topics that are addressed the topic of uh, alcohol consumption, anger, expressing emotion, uh, practicing business ethics, family, conflicts, friends, planning, being lazy, or as Proverbs would call it, being a sluggard. That's a, a typical word you'll find. Um, pride versus humility, rumors, gossip. And uh, money. These are just some of the topics that that show up. But uh, I want you to know that the the randomness of this part of the book of Proverbs is not a bug. It's it's actually it's it's a feature of the book that needs to be appreciated. And if you can if you can deal with it, you'll you'll start to see why it is the way that it is. First off, the the second part of the book of Proverbs. Um, is revealing of its, its nature as a book that is sort of a compilation of things. The, the first part of the book is these long speeches where a father is talking to his son about pursue wisdom, turn away from Lady Folly. There's about 10 of those speeches in the first part. But the second part is all of these sort of two-line or, or maybe a little more sayings. That's what we typically think of when we think of a proverb. And so, because this book, the book of Proverbs, was compiled over time, that is sort of reflected in this section of the book. But also, um, this may not be an intentional feature of the book, but I think it's a feature of the book that invites us to reflect on life. How many of your lives are neatly organized and play out exactly how you systematically want them to? None of us. The the order of this latter half of the book is, is very reflective of, of our lives. That's not to say that life is, is random. It may appear to us that way, but God has his plans, and God has his ways that are unknown to us uh, a lot of the time. But, um, Tremper Longman is an Old Testament scholar. Um, he actually wrote this book here. This is my book plug. Josh did a book plug last time. Um, so, this is a book that if you want to flip through it after the this, this service, you're welcome to. It's an introduction to all the wisdom literature, um, but he has a really great section in his uh, chapter on the book of Proverbs where he says this about the random parts of the book of Proverbs. He says, A systematic collection of Proverbs might give the impression that life is systematic and that the book of Proverbs is a how-to-fix-it book, but instead... The random collection of Proverbs reflects the messiness of life, and it reflects a refusal to see life as a neat system. And so what we're going to take a look at, and what I've sort of done here, is I've taken a lot of the Proverbs that stuck out to me as I read, that speak to this issue of how are we supposed to speak? What does it mean to speak wisely and to speak foolishly? Uh, and I've arranged them together based on some, some principles that I found, some organizing principles. So when they were being read earlier, you saw some from chapter 15, some from chapter 20-something. So I've put them together based on these organizing principles. There's four of them. So if you're, if you're taking notes, there's going to be four of these, these little principles that, that go along. So I want to talk about the first one now. And the first one is... Um, Indicative of something you might feel along the way of this whole sermon, and it's this feeling of, I already know this. It's a, it's, this is a very basic book. I mean, if you think about it, it was written uh, and compiled with the purpose of presenting this wisdom to someone who is younger. And so a lot of the book of Proverbs is like, duh. But sometimes we still need those, those duh reminders, even as we grow older. So... The first principle that jumps out to me uh, is that the book of Proverbs uses a specific language to underline how important our words are. Specifically, it uses language that takes us back to the Garden of Eden. In one of the very first sermons in this series, Josh pointed out how the wisdom literature is constantly pointing our attention back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Where Adam and Eve are put before, they're put in the garden and they're put before this uh, point of opportunity, this, this point of decision. I've told you that you can eat from all the trees in this garden, but there's one that you cannot eat from. And so, are Adam and Eve going to abide by that command or not? Are they going to go by what God has said or not? Or, in better terms, Are they going to continue to live in accordance with what God says is good? Or are they going to decide for themselves what they think is good? And so there's a couple of places in the first four Proverbs that were read earlier that have this sort of language. First Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life, this is what was presented to Adam and Eve. You can eat from all of these trees and you can remain with me forever, or you eat from this one tree and you will surely die. Proverbs 21, whoever guards his mouth and his tongue or keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. This is the same word that was used of Adam and Eve's job in the garden to guard it and to keep it. same thing for the priests in the tabernacle, guard it and keep it. Proverbs 15, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. That one's fairly obvious. There are a couple of other things in the book of Proverbs that are referred to as a tree of life, um, but the tongue is one of them. And Proverbs 17, a man of crooked heart does not discover good, tov, but one with a dishonest tongue falls into trouble. This is the same words for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or good and bad. And also notice how Proverbs 17 puts a crooked heart in parallel with your tongue. He doesn't say heart both times, and he doesn't say tongue both times. He says he talks about the heart, and he talks about the tongue, but really he's talking about the same thing. We'll see this later on when we get to Jesus, what he says about the link between our heart and our our words. Now, it's very easy for us to think that words don't matter. Thinking about something as being just words. And we live, we live in a world where we all grew up on an English proverb that says, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And there are certain situations where that might be true, and that might be something that you should say and think about. But the reality is that words can hurt. Words have the power of death and life. Also think about the digital age and how easy it is for someone to say something about someone else when there's a computer screen or cell phone screen barrier between them. It's the same kind of principle as, as when you experience road rage and you call that guy that cut you off a mean name, right? You know that he can't hear you, okay? Unless they drive a Tesla, which I think Teslas are about to be able to talk to one another. <laughs> That'll be interesting. Uh, but you, you say things to people from the comfort of your, your car because you know they can't hear you. And they're probably saying the same things about you. That's the same like mentality that I think a lot of people have when they engage with people on, on the internet. Now, one of my uh, favorite movies of all time, I don't necessarily know where it ranks on a number scale, but... It uh, came out in 2016. It's a sci-fi movie called Arrival. Have any of you seen it? A couple of you. Good. All right. Usually when I ask this, people don't raise their hands, so I'm glad there's a couple of you. It's your basic sort of sci-fi movie. We're on planet Earth. Aliens come down to us. But I love this movie because it is not, the, the direction that the movie goes is not the one you would think. You would think aliens come to Earth. The only possible solution is to blow them up. So how can we do that in the most spectacular CGI imaginable? That's not the direction that they go. Instead of blowing these creatures back to whatever, the, whatever planet they came from, their task is to try to talk to them, to try to communicate with them. And if you think about it, that is, a, that is an endeavor that is so much more fraught with danger. If you've ever tried to communicate with someone, especially across cultures, if you have a job where you're communicating with people across the world, and you're maybe even going to meet them, so you're on their turf and you're trying to make sure that you conduct business in a way that doesn't offend and doesn't send the wrong message, right? And so in the movie, the hero is a linguist. And uh, at one point in the movie, a character reads from the introduction to her her book that she wrote about language, and she says this... She says that language is the foundation of civilization. It is the glue that holds a people together. And it is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. And that's very true. It's very true. It's true of the Bible as well. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What is the serpent's first plan of attack? I'm not going to come out and bite you, because like a snake usually would. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to use words, deceptive words, twisted words. Okay, so we ought to take this first point and reflect on the power of words, just to remind ourselves that words are important. Think about whose words have meant the most to you and why they meant so much. Whose words have been a tree of life or continue to be a tree of life to you, that when you talk to that person, you always come away just refreshed and turn it around. Do other people consider conversations with you to be a tree of life? Whose words have blessed you? And some of us carry around words that have been spoken to us that continually curse us. Words matter. So the second principle from the book of Proverbs that that jumps off the pages when it talks about words is that the book of Proverbs is concerned not only with what you say, but with when and how you say it. Allow me to demonstrate with a little bit of humor. What's the difference between a cat and a comma? I'm hoping none of you have heard these before. One has claws at the end of its paws, and the other... (laughs) sorry it gets me every time the other has a pause at the end of its clause. okay here's another one (laughs) what's the difference between ignorance and apathy i don't know and i don't care all right one more what's the difference between a good joke and a bad one timing Think of your favorite comedian. It's often not what they say in the joke that gets you. It's their delivery, right? The delivery is sort of what makes the joke. And it's also sort of what makes the comedian. Certain comedians, their style is not just the content of the jokes that they say, but how they deliver them. So the book of Proverbs is onto this. And it's not just true in the world of comedy. It's true in the world of everyday life. What you say is important, but how and when you say it might be even more important. Proverbs 18 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. Answering before you have actually heard. The word for hear is the same word from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, the first couple of verses that say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a hearing that just doesn't involve words going in your ear, but it, it involves understanding. Even understanding that leads to obedience. So this is something that uh, I remember reading uh, a book on, I think it was on the prophets, written by a, a rabbi. And he talked about prophetic speech. And he said that the prophets were very concerned with people Um, hearing what they know versus knowing what they hear. A lot of us only hear what we know. Okay, think of a conversation or a person that you interact with a lot. You could probably predict what they're going to say in any given scenario. But that ability to predict can sometimes get in our way of listening and responding well. I coach cross-country. We've got a lot of runners on our team that are very driven and they're going to be, you know, honest with you about injuries. You know, this hurts a little bit, but I think I'll be okay. Or maybe I need to stop and take, it, take the rest of uh, practice off. But there are other students that it's a little harder to tell. There's the ones that come out to practice because they, they like the environment, they like being outside, they like being with their friends. But every now and then they come to you with an injury, right? Or some, some other thing that over time, I begin as a coach to have to fight against what I think I'm going to hear them say. All right? Or if they come to me and they do have a legitimate injury, but what I have heard is excuse because I've only heard what I know. And so then I send them on another lap and I just make it worse. All right? Hearing what you know versus what Proverbs would have us do, which is knowing what you hear. This is a very important tool in any communication. This is the, where the phrase, so what I hear you saying is, comes from. And not in, in a condescending way, where you're sort of jumping to conclusions or doing like what Josh talked about last Sunday, you're, you're reducing what the person has actually said. So, so what you're saying is, and then you just sort of make a caricature of what they've actually said. That's not what this is. This is actually a genuine desire to listen and understand, so then you can respond properly. And this is what we see in Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous, notice how the wise is synonymous with the righteous here. The heart of the righteous meditates on how to answer. The word meditate is the same one from Psalm chapter 1 about the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. So with the same fervor that this this man would dedicate to studying and knowing the scriptures, we, if we are to be righteous and wise, ought to work through how to respond prayerfully, in community even. That's what our community groups are for, working through these, these issues. Now it doesn't mean that the righteous or wise person is always going to come up with the perfect thing to say. All right, there's, there's going to be plenty of wise people who get stumped, but what is indicative of the wise person is that they go through this process. This ties into the last point I'm going to make about being, being slow to speak and controlling your, your speech. The wise person goes through these steps because the goal of wise speech is to say not just the right thing, but to say it in the right way and at the right time. It's very difficult. But we give it a shot. We do it with others. We do it with the Holy Spirit, even. Because it's not about what, what I want to say to this person right now. That's often our first go-to. But, but instead, we, we need to ask, what does this person need to hear from me right now? I'm a parent of two little kids. And when they do something they're not supposed to, my first reaction is to go into correction mode so that it doesn't happen again. But that's because I'm essentially trying to accomplish what I want out of the situation. I don't want them to do that again, so I'm going to try the most effective, in my mind, what seems good to me, way of, of doing it. But is Maybe correction isn't the first thing that my kids need to hear in that moment. Maybe my kids need to hear, are you okay, first. (laughs) Right? And, you know, my oldest one is is almost four, and she's getting ready to be in in a stage where she can recognize that stuff. Right? What does this person need to hear from me right now? That's the question we should be asking. This principle is carried over into the New Testament. The book of Colossians, chapter 4. This is where Paul is sort of wrapping up the letter. He's getting ready to do his final regards and shout outs to different people in Colossae. And he says this as one of his last commands in the whole letter He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. All right, think about a a plate of vegetables, right? That's what we all should eat, what we don't eat enough of a lot of times. But if you just shove the plate in front of someone, they might eat it, but they might not, because sometimes broccoli doesn't taste the best. But if you season it, if you figure out a way to present the truth, what is right, saying the right thing in the right way at the right time, Okay? that allows us to know how to answer each person. So this is carried over into Paul's writings as well. Now, the third principle that jumps out from Proverbs here. Proverbs is realistic about what to expect when you're talking with a wise person and with a fool. And these are some of my favorite Proverbs. Um, I'll start with uh, Proverbs 29. If a wise man has an argument with a fool... The fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. In Proverbs 18, 2, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. All right, so from the fool, engaging with a fool, we can expect a couple of things. We can, under, we can expect irritation, at least. Anger and rage, at, at worst. We can expect scoffing laughter, ridicule. We can expect zero interest in understanding the person that you're talking to or the issue at hand, an insistence upon their personal opinion. And ultimately, all of this just amounts to noise, which is the first thing that Proverbs 9 says about Lady Folly, is that she is loud. So from the fool, we can expect this kind of of interaction, and if you just look back over the last year and a half, we don't really have to go far or think hard enough for personal examples or broad-scale examples of this kind of dialogue. And I honestly get tired of these examples. I know you guys probably do too. Um, and so I, I wanted to give you a couple of different examples. Um, one of them is sort of an example of, of uh People engaging in this foolish kind of, of speech from, uh, from the Bible. But then there's another uh, from church history, which Dr. A will be very, very happy with. Uh, so, from, uh, from the book of Acts, there's a couple of moments where folly is completely on display. And they come later in the book when Paul is uh, getting closer to the end of his life. Uh, One of them comes in Acts chapter 21 where Paul is now going towards the Jerusalem temple and he's announcing the gospel of God and the Jewish leaders do not like that. And so they sort of meet him at the Jerusalem temple and they start causing a fuss. And they're getting a whole bunch of people worked up as well. So their numbers are growing. And it gets so bad that the Roman officials have to get called in to sort of calm down the noise. And they're trying to figure out what, what's going on because, you know, the Romans, they're probably not super keen on this, you know, Jesus fellow. He's causing lots of, uh, lots of ripples in the Jewish community and a lot of people don't like him and yada, yada, yada. And so it says that the Roman officials came to see what was going on, but in verse 34, It says that they could not learn the facts because of the uproar. It was so chaotic that there was no way for them even to figure out what's going on. They just know that people are yelling, people are upset, and somebody's going to get hurt if things don't calm down. And this actually happened a couple chapters earlier when Paul visited Ephesus. When Paul visited Ephesus there were these merchants in the city who sold idol statues of Artemis, who was sort of the temple deity in that region. And once the gospel started to spread and people started to worship Jesus rather than the gods and goddesses, these merchants started to lose money. And they realized this and they said, well, this gospel is bad for business. We got to get this guy out of here. And so they end up causing a massive riot in the city. And the chapter, uh, chapter 19 of Acts goes into a couple of details about this riot. It's a fairly lengthy section, but one of my favorite parts of it is describing all the different people who joined in to the riot, and Luke, the author of Acts, made it a point to tell us that not just some of the people who were there, but most of the people who were rioting in the city, most people who gathered together did not know why they had come together. They were just getting caught up in the moment, right? People are running down the streets of Ephesus, smashing windows and grabbing things, and they're just like, hey, that looks, that looks great. I want to be outraged about something. Have we seen none of that in the last year and a half? This is folly. So the book of Proverbs is realistic about this. It's not like, maybe you'll change your mind. It's actually like, no, really think about what you could be walking into, but it gives us the other picture, the picture of a wise person. It says in Proverbs sixteen, twenty-one that the wise of heart is called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. All right. So, <coughs> excuse me. This is um, something else that we see in uh, in church history. There's one of one of the most possibly most well-known church history figure, St. Augustine. He uh, was the bishop in North Africa in the 4th and 5th centuries, and he wrote an absolutely massive book called The City of God, and it's 22 sections long, probably a 1,000 pages long, but it's got 22 sections, and instead of waiting until he finished the whole thing and then put it out, he would write a couple sections, publish, write a couple sections, and publish. And so the content of the book, I don't have time to, to get into it because it's, it's not really important for what I'm going to say, but he released the first few volumes and people, a lot of people did not like it. And they wanted to shut him up and they wanted to show him why he was wrong. And so he's writing the next sections and he hears that there's these people that don't like his first volumes and they're planning this sort of slanderous attack on him. And so he actually puts into one of his volumes a warning to this group of people. And I love what he says, and I remember reading it at the time and thinking, wow, this, is, this should be like, you know, you do like terms of agreement when you have certain apps or something like that. This should be part of the terms of agreement if you join a social media platform, okay? So, Augustine says to these, these critics, he says, it's easy for anyone to imagine that they have made a reply when all they have done is simply refuse to keep silence. When people speak up on social media and they're like, you know, I've been waiting to, to say something, but I just can't. I can't hold on any longer. I, got, I have to say something. All right? That's that's what he's talking about. Is anything more long-winded than folly? But it must not be supposed that folly is as powerful as the truth just because it can shout louder and longer than the truth if it wants to. And then he gets direct at these people and he says, Drop the silly pose of superiority. Raise your objections as someone who is really interested in learning. Ask your questions in a spirit of friendly discussion and then listen when the one you've asked does his best to give a courteous and serious reply. And his final admonition to them is to choose to be corrected by the wise rather than to win the applause of fools. Really, that's all that social media engagement is for a lot of people, is an effort to gain applause. I say this thing because I want you to see that I've said it, and it makes me feel good when you see that I've said it. Is that what we're trying to get out of our communication or are we really seeking to understand? And as Christians, that should be one of the primary things that we're known for is people who seek to understand the other, going as far as we can to understand the other so that we can rightly respond and graciously respond. And so I want to give you the the fourth principle and, and try to wrap up quickly here. The fourth thing is sort of the most obvious thing, but it's the most difficult. And it's that the book of Proverbs, in, according to the book of Proverbs, choosing whether or not to speak is just as important as what you speak. This would be what the letter of James calls taming your tongue. And sometimes we have a hard time doing that, holding back our words, whether in speech or typing. All right, maybe we're very passionate about the subject that's being talked about and we want to share. Or maybe we just got really invested in this conversation and, and we just want to have the last word. Or maybe we don't want to appear to be ignorant. I know that's a problem for me. I, I want to appear that if I'm talking about something, I want to seem like I'm competent and I know what I'm talking about. And so. A lot of times I won't get into a discussion if I don't really know. And this is actually something that psychologists have studied. This is something that back in 1999, some Cornell psychologists uh, published a a study on this that has become known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, if any of you have heard heard of it before. Essentially, the Dunning-Kruger effect is people who have less understanding or knowledge about a subject typically have more confidence in what they know. And the inverse is true. People who have more understanding and knowledge about a subject are a little less confident. Not necessarily less confident in what they know, but they know enough to know what they don't know, if that makes sense. They have, they have what I like to call intellectual humility. And that's a very attractive trait. People who have intellectual humility, who seek to know, they don't presume to know more than they do so that they can appear to be a certain way. And restraining your speech protects you from a lot of the things that you might say that you would regret saying. This is something that I I experience whenever my wife and I have any sort of conflict, that she will often take a bit longer to to express how she's feeling. And over the years, I've, I've realized that it's it's because she has a lot of things that she wants to say, but those aren't necessarily the right things to say or they aren't accurately expressing what she really feels. Because she doesn't want to hurt me. She, she knows that, you know, I'm not the enemy, she's not the enemy. We're, we're trying to work through something. And so holding your speech, restraining it until you have the right thing to say in the right way at the right time. Now, as Christians, we're always thinking of what the gospel does for these areas of our life, all right? And there's big areas like, like with, your, with your work or with your relationships or with other kinds of things, but it seems like your, your speech is small. Back to my first point, speech just seems like words, so what would the gospel possibly have to do with how I, how I talk? there's a couple of, of things I want to point out here. The first one, and maybe the most obvious, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us forgiveness for our sins of speech, past, present, and future. One of the most common confessions of sin in the Book of Common Prayer says, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And we need that forgiveness. But it also frees us by giving us a new source for our words. The book of Proverbs creates a a predicament for us because it says, control your speech. And then we get to the book of James, towards the end of your New Testament, and James chapter 3 says, no human can tame their speech. (laughs) So, Old Testament, do it. New Testament, you can't do it. What do we do? (laughs) Ah, what do I do? So, Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, says that out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. The book of Proverbs links your heart with your tongue over and over again in poetic parallelism. There's a reason for that. What you say comes out from within you, all right? So, by the giving of this new heart, we have... Like all the other gospel passages say, we're a new creation. We have this fresh start. We're a new person, a new nature, all right? Good things can come out of us now, right? They're no longer tainted with false motives or jockeying for position, all right? We are speaking in a genuinely loving way. It's not a guarantee that we will. Being a Christian is by no means a guarantee that you will always say the right things, but it's a start and it's the right starting point. It also fills us with the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that when we are filled with the Spirit, there are a couple of things that happen. One of those things is that he immediately links our speech. Be filled with the Spirit. Let filthiness and foolish talk have no place among you. So he identifies that as one of the things that, that begins to change. But he also says... That when we are filled with the Spirit, what comes out of our mouth is a beautiful expression of thankfulness, and it manifests itself in song, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the same passage. So we are filled with the Spirit, but then the final thing that the gospel does for us, and I think this is something that is important, not just for living wisely in the area of speech, but living wisely in any area of life. This is a metaphor that's been helpful to me, uh, and it's, it's a metaphor of theater. Any of you do any sort of theater or you like theater? Wow, even fewer hands, okay. <laughs> you probably know enough about theater to track with this, okay? In theater, you have a director, they're sort of the ones that have masterminded this, this story, and they've put it into a script. And the script, if you read it, tells you the plot of the story. And in order for that theater to be displayed, you need actors and actresses, right? Director, speech, plot, actors. You can map this onto the Christian life pretty well. And I think it's very helpful, all right? Of course, we have God, our director, who has given us a script or scriptures, okay, and what do the scriptures do? The scriptures give us the grand story. And like I was mentioning the book of Acts, the book of Acts comes to an end on sort of an ellipsis. All right, things kind of wrap up with Paul, but it seems like the church is going on. That's where you and I come in. And that's where Christians throughout history have come in. And so the script tells us the plot and Because of the gospel, we are graciously given a role in that story. Now, if any of you have ever acted in any way before, or if you've watched bloopers of theatrical performances, you know that sometimes people forget what they're supposed to say. (laughs) Right? Line, please. But there's also places in theater, and going back to the comedy illustration, this is a big one in comedy, there are places in these sort of enacted dramas where people are called upon to improvise. And for an improvisation to be good, it can't just be made up anything that you want, right? You can't be acting in Macbeth and then you start improvising from a totally different story, like from Hamilton. You, can't, you just can't do it. Improvisation is tied to the story. But... Improvisation is creative, it's inspired, and it's made of a free choice by the actor. So actors who know the script, they know the story, and actors who know their character, they know who they are in the story. They are the ones who are most fit to drive the story further by improvising. So in the Christian life, our improvisation is somewhat inspired by this script, the books of the Bible that we've been given. And we become more and more familiar with that story, but we also become more and more familiar and knowledgeable of who we are in Christ and what is proper of us as Christians, what ought to come out of our mouth. And so when you find yourselves in scenarios of life, many of you have had several of these scenarios. Some of you may be in one right now. And many of us will find ourselves in scenarios where the right words just don't seem to come. And we search the scriptures. What do I say? But this metaphor of theater reminds us that we have a responsibility as Christians to creatively move the story of God forward you may not know exactly what to say. When you're in the middle of saying something to someone in a really hard situation, you may not be sure it's the right thing. But if it's informed by the story, and if it's coming from a place of a genuine Christian heart where the overflow of our heart is life and peace and harmony and goodness intended for the other person, not just for myself, then we will find ourselves speaking words of wisdom. So I leave you with that. An encouragement, a a maybe even an inspiration to think creatively about your responses to people, how you would engage them, especially how you would engage them differently than the way you normally do. So, would you pray with me as, toward that end? Lord, thank you for giving us your Word, your Scriptures. Thank you for bringing us into your story from saving us from the story that we create for ourselves that is tragic. But Lord, help us to know the way forward. Help us to do good to our neighbor with our words. And let that goodness go just beyond our intent. Help the words that we speak to actually be trees of life to those who hear them. And, Lord, help us to know when to restrain speech, when to close our mouths so that you could open something up within the person's heart. Let all of this done, whether our speech or our silence, let it be done in love and humility with a genuine desire for the good of your people and for your glory. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.